precious Father, we're here because of Jesus, because of all that Jesus has done for us, because of your infinite love and all that you have done for us over 2015. Father, we just praise you and thank you. And as we enter a new year, we look forward with confidence to what you have in store for us. But here we are, Father, on the first Sabbath of 2016, and we're asking for a word from you. We're asking for your Holy Spirit to come down with power in this place. We're asking that our hearts would be open to hear your voice, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we'd fall more in love with you. Father, we don't want to walk away this morning unchanged by you. And that can only happen through your power and through your word. So we ask that you take over now for your namesake and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Some of you were alive during the Cold War. I learned about this uh, not too long ago, about something that happened during the Cold War. Now, you might be fairly familiar with the first part of this story, and that is what took place not long after World War II in the city of Berlin. Now, Berlin had a problem because on the east side of Berlin, you had the communists, and on the west side of Berlin, you had it divided after World War II. So you had the, the Western nations were given, uh, the, the, the democratic system was on the Western side of Berlin. And anybody who was involved with the Eastern side of, of Germany, they, they wanted to be on the Western side, a lot of them, because there began to be this mass immigration that took place as thousands and thousands of people began to go, similarly to what we're seeing now as you have Syrians immigrating to Europe. There were tons of, of immigrants that were going from East Germany to West Germany, and this really caused problems for those who were in government in Eastern Germany, those who were the communists who were trying to control what was going on. In fact, there were some standoffs, famous things that took place where you had the West and the East, just a lot of tension going on in the city. You had them facing off with tanks and all kinds of intense situations until finally Eastern Germany decided, here's what we're going to do. We are going to divide Berlin. We are going to build a wall. The wall of Berlin, this went up in 1961. First, it was a makeshift wall with some barbed wire, and it was a fairly small wall most of the way. But this effectively stopped the immigration that was taking place, the people who were running away from the communist society. And so little by little, because you know, these people saw that what was on the western side was so much better, they saw that that was a good place to be. They wanted to be there. So eventually they built this high wall, I think it was about 12 feet high. It had this big gigantic pipe on the top. And on the eastern side, they had sand so that if you walked across it, they could see footprints. They had people with machine guns there. There were well over 100 people that died trying to cross the Berlin Wall. It represented division. It represented holding back people. It represented oppression. It represented stopping people from experiencing what they saw as the good life in Western Germany. Well, Thankfully, in 1989, I believe it was November 9, the eastern side decided that they were going to end, basically, this was a huge part of ending the Cold War, but they, they decided that this division needed to stop. And they allowed for the eastern people to cross over to the western side. And so you see here some pictures, they smashed the wall, people were going up to it with hammers and with pickaxes, they were just trying to demolish it, and little by little, they began to pull down the wall. This is an incredible moment, especially for the United States who had been locked in this cold war for so many years, and this moment symbolized that communism was breaking down, that at this time, freedom was becoming more prevalent, and our own safety as a nation was becoming greater. This is an important moment in history, but there's something behind it that a lot of us don't realize. Get the book by Mark Finley, Revive Us Again. It recounts the story of a pastor by the name of Christian Furrer. You can look him up on Google. Christian Furrer was a pastor in Leipzig on the eastern side of Germany, on the, that side uh, of Berlin. He was a pastor who was passionate about freedom. And so on Monday nights, he decided we need to do something. So he didn't start 
a special political campaign. He didn't start sending out all kind of literature about freedom. You know what he did on Monday nights? He said, let's get together and let's pray. He just opened up his church and he said, let's pray. I mean, what could that do in a world conflict, a huge conflict that involved nations around the world? What could prayer possibly do in one small little church? Thank you, Terrence, for sharing what prayer has done in this church over the past year. You know as a church that prayer is powerful, that prayer makes all the difference. Well, Christian Fur he opened up his church and they began to pray on Monday nights. And week by week as they met to pray on Monday nights, the crowd began to get bigger and bigger and bigger until, it was, this was in 1982 when he started these prayer meetings. And, and I imagine it didn't grow very fast at first. Eventually they had a few hundred who were coming and they felt like this was a wonderful thing. They were having prayer meetings together and there were hundreds of people there. But something began to climax and become more and more uh, intense as they got to October of 1989. Now remember, the Berlin Wall fell in November of 1989. October 9 of 1989, there were several thousand that actually packed into the church and the streets began to be packed outside of that church. And then the next week, there was some estimate 20 to to 30,000 that appeared. And anyway, by the week before the wall fell, there were 170,000 people who met together as a result of that one prayer meeting. All because of prayer. Here's the interesting thing. An Eastern German official said, we were ready for anything except for candles and prayer. They were ready for war. They were ready for the tanks that the U.S. sent there. They were ready for anything. But the Berlin Wall fell down. What few people realize is because people prayed. Can you imagine what God wants to do in 2016 as you and I pray? We know the text well in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. Go there with me, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. It's a familiar promise, but a promise that is still valuable to us today, that still holds power for us today. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. It's a very humbling thing to pray. When you, when you have a problem in your life, And you don't go about solving it in your own strength, but you simply turn to God and say, God, will you answer? Will you work? When you're facing a problem as big as the Berlin Wall and you hold a prayer meeting, that's a humbling thing. It's not something that seems powerful. It's not something that on the outside appears like it's making a difference, and yet it can change the world. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God did this in Germany. He broke down the wall as they met together to pray. God healed their land. God opened up a way for them to experience the life that they wanted to experience. You know, throughout the Bible, God's people are captivated by the presence of God. They see God's presence as the one place that they really want to be. You have all kinds of promises like Psalm 16 and verse 11 that says, In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. You have Psalm 27. The psalmist says this, verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, That will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Of all things, the psalmist says, of anything. Here he is, king. He has everything you could possibly imagine. He says, one thing I've asked from the Lord, one thing I desire, and that is to dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold his beauty, to see Jesus. Nothing better than that. And yet, in my life, I find that there are often walls keeping me back from that. There are often barriers that keep me from really experiencing the presence of God, from really seeing Jesus in all of his beauty, from really experiencing all that God wants me to experience. 
there are walls in our lives, there are barriers in our lives, and they only come down through the power of prayer. Jesus will only show up with power in this church, and he's only been showing up with power in this church because we're a church of prayer, because this is a house of prayer. This is where people come to experience Jesus through prayer. I love the stories that we've been going through about the first Adventists. We've talked about the shepherds. The shepherds were ones who were looking for the coming of Jesus. They were praying. They were asking for the Messiah to come. And the angels showed up to them with power. We talked about last week about Simeon and how Simeon was one of those who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. One who was looking for, expecting, hoping for Jesus to come. Today's sermon title is the first Adventist push. Push is an acronym that's coined for pray until something happens. This is what you find with the first Adventists is that they kept on praying even though it took years and years. Just like Christian Furr and his church when they, they prayed for many years from 1982 until 1989, seven years before that wall fell down, but they kept on praying and something happened. Freedom came to Germany. The same thing happens when you go to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, you find a prayer meeting taking place. Luke chapter 1 begins by telling us about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, Elizabeth was barren, and they wanted to have a child. And then it tells us that Zechariah had been chosen to go and burn incense. Now, this would happen only once a while in a, in a priest's lifetime. It wouldn't happen very often at all. But then look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 10. As he goes to burn incense, it says this, And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Did you know that this is what would take place at the morning and evening offering? That would, the priest would go in, he would offer the sacrifice, he would take the incense in, and the whole congregation would come together and they would be there in prayer. And you know what they were praying for? Scholars tell us that, and from Jewish history, we know that they were praying for the Messiah. They recognized from the prophecies of Daniel 9 that the 70 weeks was fulfilled, that Jesus should be coming back, that they were living right at that time when the Messiah was coming. And so they were likely there that day praying for the Messiah. But they'd been praying this prayer for so many years. They'd been praying for 400 years. In fact, since they'd heard anything in the Bible. You look at the Bible, and we read from the Old Testament to the New Testament, just flip one page. But what, what took place between Malachi and Matthew is 400 years of silence. 400 years in which there was no prophet who was giving uh, a word from the Lord. There were no special things going on. You don't, you don't see anything recorded in the Bible about this huge amount of time. And all during this time, there were people, faithful people, who were following God's promise. They were humbling themselves and they were praying. But can you imagine year after year, after a while you think, well, are my prayers really making a difference? Oh, we've prayed for so long. Surely God's heard by now. Why do we keep on praying? Have you ever had something like that in your life that you've been praying for it for so long that you finally say, well... There's no reason to keep praying for this. Don't stop praying. Never stop praying until that prayer is fulfilled because we serve a God who hears and who answers prayer. Love what it says in the book, Great Controversy, page 525. It says, Were not miracles wrought by Christ and his apostles? The same compassionate Savior lives today. And he is as willing to answer the prayer of faith as when he walked visibly among men. The natural cooperates with the supernatural. And then catch this. It is part of God's plan to grant us in answer to the prayer of faith that which he would not bestow did we not thus ask. Let that sink in. There are things in your life that will not happen, although God longs for them to happen. In his great controversy and in his incredible love for you, he's limiting himself 
And he's just waiting. That's why Jesus so often promised you, just ask and you will receive. But then in James chapter 4, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus wants to do so much more for us. And yet so often, we don't push. We don't pray until something happens. We don't continue to seek Jesus' presence until we have it. But in Luke chapter 1, you find a group who were coming together. And I imagine on that day, there were probably people who said, I've gone to the temple so many times. There's no point in going back to the temple again to pray. I mean, we do this every time and the Messiah hasn't come. I don't see a point in continuing to pray. But there were people that day who said, Jesus is going to come one of these times. The Messiah is going to show up and I don't want to miss it. And I want to be a part of the group who's praying, who's seeking for the coming of the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. And remember, it's been 400 years since a a revelation from God has been sent. But verse 11 says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer has been heard. In fact, all of that congregation, as they've been praying for the Messiah, this is the answer. And he goes on to tell them about John the Baptist, who's going to come as a forerunner for the Messiah. 400 years they've been waiting for this moment, but that day, as that group gathered together in prayer, the prayer was answered And the Messiah's forerunner was sent. What an incredible God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Barriers come down when we push through, when we continue to pray, when we don't just ask once. Oftentimes that's the way it is, isn't it? I'm as guilty as anybody. When somebody asks me to pray for something, I try to pray for it right then. But how often do we continue to earnestly pray for those things that we know God wants to do in our lives? Those things that we long to see God do in our lives? Or how about when we're not experiencing that fullness of joy that Jesus has promised us? In eastern Germany, it was a miserable place. Everybody wanted to get to western Germany. They wanted that wall to fall down. And it was those who were willing to pray that saw that wall fall down. And I'm beginning to realize that in my own life, if I want the presence of Jesus, which brings fullness of joy, if I want the peace that he brings, if I want the Holy Spirit, then I have to be a part of those who are praying and who are seeking it, who are determined to pray until something happens. I can't go through my day anymore discontent to go on and say, well, Jesus will show up when he's going to show up. No, I have to pray until I have that peace, until I have that joy, until I know that Jesus is walking with me. That's what you find with the first Adventists. They prayed until something happened. Go over to Luke chapter 2. Last week we talked about Simeon in Luke chapter 2. This week we're going to look at the next person who shows up as Jesus is dedicated as that tiny, humble child. In that moment of humility where here you have poor parents who can't even afford the, the, the biggest offering like they're supposed to, but they bring that offering that there's an allowance for in the law. They bring just two pigeons. The priest totally misses the point that the Messiah is there because all it is is a humble baby in some humble parents' arms. But Simeon gets it because he'd been waiting for, he'd been looking for, he'd been living for this moment He was willing to die once that moment came. He was all out seeking Jesus. Then after Simeon blesses Jesus, in verse 36 of Luke chapter 2, it says this. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. 
And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Luke often includes a lot of details. And here he starts off with a biographical information. This is how we know we can trust Luke because he'll often give so many details about who this woman was. And he was writing not that long after the death of Christ. And people would have known for sure whether this was fact or not. So this is a a great gospel to, to know the historical reliability of the gospels. But one of the details that he gives us here is that she was of a great age. Now, we're not sure exactly what this means here. The Greek is a little confusing, but the King James does a good job of putting it in the ambiguity that it really represents in the Greek. But here it says, she was of great age, lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. So there's two possible ways that we can consider this. It could be that she lived for seven years of her virginity, and then it tells us that she's 84 years old. But more likely, scholars agree that it's saying from seven years from the time she was married, so let's say a young age for being married at that time. She's married at 15. Seven years from then would be how old? 22. Good, our brains are working. At 22 years of age, she experienced the horrible loss of losing her husband. Now, this is terrible today, to lose a life partner. I can't imagine what it would be like just this past week. We had our eighth anniversary. I'm so blessed to be happily married. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose your life partner. What would you do? What would you... It it would be even harder back then because to be a widow was extremely degrading. You didn't have all the rights that you would have today. Women back then didn't have rights to property. They, didn't have, uh, they wouldn't have the hope of an inheritance. It was tough to be a widow. Widows weren't, if you didn't have a husband to take care of you, and you didn't have sons to take care of you, and since she was so young, she might not have had sons to take care of her, she might have been in a world of hurt. But rather than feeling sorry for herself, she does exactly what in 2 Timothy 5.5 5, it says widows should do. That they should serve God in a special way as we find that Anna does. Rather than feeling sorry for herself. So, sorry, we're back at calculating her age. 22 years old at this point, maybe when her husband died. If you go 84 years from then, how old would she be at that point? 106. Now that sounds like a great age, doesn't it? But whether she's 84 or whether she is 106, she has spent 84 years as a widow. How has she spent that time? Has she spent her time feeling sorry for herself, feeling so lonely? Let's see how she spent her time. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. This woman, for 84 years, she just said, I want to be in that one place that the psalmist talked about, to behold the beauty of the Lord. I want to be in God's presence. And she served God. How did she serve God? You know, when we talk about serving God, we talk about working for God, we think of a lot of different ways of doing it. Sometimes we think of, well, I'm going to serve God by going on a mission trip. I'm going to serve God by going and sharing literature. I'm going to serve God. And we think of lots of different ways of serving God. How did she serve God? She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. This lady was serving God by constantly praying, by constantly fasting and praying, by constantly seeking Jesus and seeking the coming of the Messiah. What an incredible testimony of a woman's life. And look at how Jesus shows up in her life. In verse 38, it says, In coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked. The word there is to wait for, to look for the redemption in Israel. Remember the promise we've talked about in Hebrews 9 and verse 28 that Jesus is coming a second time and he's coming to appear to those who are looking for, who are waiting for his coming. How was she looking for it? How was she waiting for it? By persistently praying. She was going to pray 
until something happened. Can you imagine day after day for 84 years, you're looking for the Messiah, you're praying for for Jesus to come, and yet year after year, it's not happening. At what point do you stop? At what point do you say, well, I'm just going to go do something else with my life? Not Anna. She continued in the temple in prayer. Night and day with fastings and prayer, she was looking for Jesus to come. And in my life, I'm realizing that that's got to be the one thing that drives me. That I've got to have the same passion that Christian Furrer had to see every wall come down in my life until Jesus' presence is constant in my life. Nothing else matters. We are Adventists. We are looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. But not only that, we're looking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a special way. And that's what happens in, right after the Gospels, after Jesus had ascended to heaven. How did they look for the coming of Jesus? In John 16 and verse 7, Jesus had said to them, It's to your advantage that I go away. I'm really happy that I'm going away because if I didn't go away, then the comforter would not come to you. The one who brings you that that peace, that joy, the one who breaks down every barrier that has ever separated us from God, the Holy Spirit being poured out, that's going to happen when I ascend to my Father. And what took place in the disciples' lives in order for that to happen? It took 10 days in the upper room, 10 days in earnest prayer. Acts, 120, or Acts 2.1 says that they were all together in one accord, in one place, in prayer. And the Holy Spirit was poured out. Walls were broken down. The walls at that time involved languages. They involved all the different languages that were impossible for them to spread the gospel at that point. Those languages were broken down in that moment. God wants to break down walls for us. But are we willing to pray until something happens? Am I willing to pray until I see Jesus come in my heart? And am I willing to pray until I see his second coming? I think that's the question for us in 2016. Are we going to be continuing as a house of prayer? Terrence talked about all the amazing things that God has done over the past year in answer to prayer. He showed up in so many ways, so many answers to prayer. But will we persist in prayer? Revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. Will we persist in prayer? Will we continue in prayer? Because God will show up when we pray. The disciples, when they went to pray in the upper room, They didn't set out to just pray for 10 days and then know that at the end of the 10 days that Jesus was going to show up through the presence of the Holy Spirit. They began to pray and they were planning to pray to tarry in Jerusalem like Jesus had told them until something happened, until they received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm realizing there's nothing sweeter than that. There's nothing that should obsess me more in 2016 than the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, than to have the presence of Jesus, than to have every wall broken down in my life so that I can be filled with the presence of Jesus. Adventists have been all about prayer throughout history. You can start back in the days of Daniel, and we'll look more at that. You can go to the days of the first Adventists who were looking for the first Advent. You can go to the time of Martin Luther and see the prayer life that he lived. And you can go down to the time of William Miller. We've talked about William Miller and how he began to see in the prophecies of Daniel that they were becoming fulfilled, that we were living in the very end times, that in 1844 he believed Jesus was going to be coming back in the clouds. It's interesting how it's recorded in this book. It talks about the early Advent movement and the time that they spent in prayer. It says that at our important meetings, we would meet together. We would pray earnestly, for we felt that we must learn God's truth. Often we remained together until late at night and sometimes through the entire night, praying for light and studying the word. Sometimes they would pray the entire night, just like Anna praying earnestly for Jesus to come into their hearts so that they could understand truth, so that they could see truth in new and powerful ways. 
1840, William Miller, as he began preaching this message, he would go to towns, and it's recorded that entire towns would be converted through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the book Life Sketches, page 137, Ellen White describes one thing that she saw. She saw conviction spread through an entire city. Prayer meetings were established. There was a general awakening among the various denominations, for they all felt more or less the influence that proceeded from the reaching of the coming of Christ. And F.D. Nichols records that little prayer meetings have been set up in almost every part of the city. That movement was so powerful. That movement that went around the world between 1840 and 1844, proclaiming that that this was the prophecy of the 2300 days was going to be fulfilled. What gave that movement power was that it was a movement of prayer. A people who met together to pray. Little prayer meetings throughout the city and entire cities were transformed because they were a people who prayed until something happens. I want to be a person who prays until something happens because it's a part of God's plan to do and answer to prayer that which he could not do if I didn't pray. In this great controversy, he's limited himself to what you and I ask him for. What a gentleman, what a God of love that he says, I'm going to reveal myself with power. I want to do this in your life, but I'll only do it if you ask me for it. The question is, will we pray until something happens. In the book, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, it describes this prayer movement among the early Adventist church. And that after 1840 even, they continued to be much in prayer. It says, We must be much in prayer if we would make progress in the divine life. When the message of truth was first proclaimed, how much we prayed. How often was the voice of intercession heard in the chamber, in the barn, in the orchard, or the grove. Frequently we spent hours in earnest prayer. Two or three together claimed the promise. Often the sound of weeping was heard, and then the voice of thanksgiving and the song of praise. They were earnest about seeing Jesus come back. They wanted to do whatever it took, and they were often together in prayer, spending hours together in prayer, earnestly seeking the presence of Jesus. And in my life, if I don't have that earnestness about seeking Jesus' presence, I have to ask myself, what's wrong? I have to say, Jesus, would you please instill in me that same heart, because I want to be one of those who's looking for your coming, who's ready for your coming, who's praying until something happens continues, says, now the day of God is nearer than when we first believed, and we should be more earnest, more zealous, and fervent than in those early days. Our perils are greater now than then. Souls are more hardened. We need now to be imbued with the Spirit of Christ, and we should not rest until we receive it. That's what I want for 2016. I want to not rest until I'm filled with more of the Spirit of Jesus. Because nothing else matters. One thing I have sought from the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. In Psalm 84, the psalmist says, One day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. To be in Jesus' presence brings fullness of joy, being peace in every conflict. Because in 2016, you're going to face difficulties. You're going to face trials at work. You're going to face problems possibly in your family. You're going to face challenging situations in your finances. You're not going to know how to get through, but Jesus knows how. He knows the way through. And the more that we seek Him in prayer, the more time that we spend seeking the presence of Jesus, the more strength we'll have to get through day by day. She goes on to describe in Manuscript Releases, Volume 3, page 413, As we fasted and prayed, great power came upon us. So what is this about fasting? You notice that Anna was there in the the temple and that she was not only praying, but she was also fasting. Well, why is it that she was fasting? There's something interesting that Jesus teaches us about fasting in Luke chapter 5. 
you go there with me to Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees and the disciples of John come to Jesus and they're a little upset because you and I, we love to eat, right? I love my meals. I love food. And the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, but the disciples of Jesus weren't. And so this made them upset. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 33, it says, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus, this isn't fair. How come your disciples get to eat and drink all the time? They're not fasting. Note Jesus' answer in verse 34. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? See what he's saying there? Can, why would you fast when the bridegroom is here, when, when the Messiah is here, when Jesus is right there with you? You don't need to fast. But then he goes on to say when we do need to fast. In verse 35, he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. There comes a time for fasting, and that time is when we're missing the presence of Jesus. I love what it says in The Desire of Ages. I don't have this one on the screen, but The Desire of Ages, page 277, commenting on this, says, Yet days of temptation and trial would come when they would be brought into conflict with the rulers of the world and the leaders of the kingdom of darkness when Christ was not personally with them. So these same disciples would come to a place in time where they wouldn't have Jesus with them. And she says at that point, when they failed to discern the Comforter, then it would be more fitting for them to fast. You see, when it's fitting for us to fast, when Jesus says that we should fast, it's when we're lacking the presence of Jesus, which comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's when we're missing Jesus. See, fasting was something that gave, for one thing, more time for people to pray. Back in the days of the Bible, it took a long time to fix your meals. And so you didn't just go to McDonald's in order to pick up your, your meal. Hopefully we don't do that now anyway. <laughs> but it took a long time to fix your food. And so if you were fasting, it gave you more time to pray. Does that make sense? Similarly, it would remind you to pray. If you've ever fasted, you notice that when you're fasting and when you're, when you're taking time and you haven't eaten, your stomach begins to alert you to things. And that's just a reminder that, hey, I really want something right now. Just like I have this hunger, I really am hungry for Jesus and I need to take more time to pray. So fasting doesn't necessarily have to include just something where we avoid food. It could be something that we avoid something else that's habitual in our life. Let's say each morning as you go to work, maybe you turn on the radio and you listen to, I don't know, the news or something on the way to work. Fasting could be as simple as taking a sticky note and placing it over your radio and saying, don't turn the radio on, pray. Or just put pray, exclamation point. And every morning as you're on your way to work, you reach for the radio and you say, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to pray. And you begin to develop a habit of prayer because you want the presence of Jesus in your life. It could be as simple as Facebook. We all, a lot of us have Facebook on our phones. I shouldn't say we all, but quite a few of us have Facebook on our phones. It could be as simple as saying, okay, I'm going to take some time to fast from Facebook. Now, Facebook can be used for some very good things. We can spread the love of Jesus on Facebook. But it might be that you say, I need to develop a habit of giving time to prayer. And so you might say, well, I'm going to fast from Facebook. And then whenever you go to click on Facebook, you go to turn it on. You say, no, instead, I'm going to pray right now. And you begin to develop a habit of prayer. Or it can be what we often find in the Bible times, and that is explicitly that they fasted from food. And this is a great reminder. Every time you come to your lunch break, you say, oh, today I'm not going to eat. I'm going to pray today instead. I found this is an incredibly refreshing thing, even just to fast one day a week. 
Generally, I tend to take Fridays, and just to take Friday as a day of prayer and fasting and studying, preparing for Sabbath. And on Friday, I have more time to pray. I, have, I don't have to worry about going and eating my meals because it's a day for me to just focus on Jesus. It's a powerful thing. It clears the mind. And you find that this is what the early Adventists were doing. This is what Anna was doing in the temple day and night. She was actually serving God by praying and by fasting. In the book Redemption, Volume 4, it says, How could the children of the bride chamber fast when the bridegroom was yet with them? Talking about this, what Jesus says in Luke 5. But when he should go back to heaven, leaving the disciples to meet alone the unbelief and darkness of the world, then it would be fitting for the church to fast and mourn until her absent Lord should return the second time. We are living in a time when we need to pray until something happens. And we're living in a time when if we're lacking the presence of Jesus, we're noticing that we want more of his presence, it's a good idea to both pray and also to fast. It doesn't have to be from food. It can be from something else, but it might be from food or it might even be a fast like Daniel did where he, it, it's, uh, there's different, you might have heard of the Daniel fast before, but it, it can be just fruits and vegetables, simple grains, something like that. Various ways of fasting. And these things aren't to commend ourselves to God. It's not to cut out something bad out of our life. If you're going to cut something bad out of your life, just cut it out. But fasting is to develop a habit of seeking Jesus. It's to clear our minds. It's to focus on the one thing that matters. And that is the presence of Jesus. As those living on the verge of the second coming, what could be more important to us today than to pray until something happens? Back in 2010, I went to Andrews University to the seminary. And that time there was a powerful time for me. During that time, I joined some different prayer groups and I, I had some experiences that were really life-changing. But what we've talked about today, about praying until something happens, became a reality to me in a whole new way, in a very personal way. When we first got there, they were having a, a period of prayer leading up to an evangelistic prophecy seminar. It was going to be 40 days of prayer. And in that 40 days of prayer, as Leah and I decided, well, let's, let's be a part of this. We got the book and we began to, to take this time to pray together each and every day. We were following this, this plan and we were going to the church. We began, at one point they challenged us to pray specifically for five individuals. So we made a list of five people, each of us. So there was about, there was 10 people that we were praying for at least. And as we made this list of people, we began to pray for them day in and day out. Now, one of the people on my list was my Uncle Alan. Now, Uncle Alan, for years, has been out of the church. He grew up, my, this is my dad's brother. His father was a uh, call porter who went around selling books about Jesus. His mom was an elementary school teacher in a Seventh-day Adventist church. He grew up knowing about Jesus. He grew up knowing the Bible for himself. But for some reason, he chose to walk away from that as a teenager and into high school and college. And he began to become what the family knew as the black sheep of the family. And day in and day out, my grandpa would pray for my Uncle Alan. He prayed for him for years and years until my grandpa passed away. My grandma kept praying for my Uncle Alan for another, I think it was another eight years or so he li she lived after my grandpa passed away. Continued to pray for my uncle just that God would work in his life. But she passed away. My dad kept on praying though and sometimes we would pray together as a family but I honestly hadn't been praying very consistently for my uncle. But in this 40 days of prayer I thought well let's add Uncle Alan to the list. So we put Uncle Alan on the list that we were going to pray for him. You remember what it says in Great Controversy, that it's a part of God's plan to do what he would not be able to do if we did not ask. And what James 4 says, you don't have because you do not ask. Now we had been asking for years and years for God to work in my uncle's life. But during this 40 days, as we continued to ask, we continued to pray, 
towards the end of that 40 days, radical things began to happen in my uncle's life. But they weren't like amazing things that you might hope for or expect when you're praying for somebody. You might hope, well, they have this amazing conversion experience, they're passionate about the Bible, and they're coming back to church. No. My uncle began to go through a divorce. He went through this terrible breakup. And then he got really sick. In fact, eventually, he ended up having to have his leg amputated. And you might pray for somebody and say, well, God, I'm praying for blessings in their life. I'm praying for them to come to know Jesus. Why are all these terrible things happening in their life? I mean, he had his leg amputated. He, his marriage broke apart. This is terrible. Why is all this stuff happening when I'm praying for him? But you know that through all those things, he came back to church. And today, he's passionately trying to tell the rest of our family about Jesus. Just this last week, he sent pictures from church service in Christmas in Colorado where he was. He, there's members in our family who don't know yet know Jesus very well, and he's trying to give them three ABN satellites for Christmas and trying to do whatever he can to share Jesus with them. Not that his life is suddenly perfect now, but God answered. And I can't help but wonder, what if I had stopped praying? I can't help but wonder, who have I stopped praying for in the past? Who have I said, well, I've already prayed enough for them? And God's saying, would you just keep on praying? Would you just pray until something happens? Because I want to show up. I want to answer. I want to work with power in your life. Starting this Wednesday night, we're going to have 10 days of prayer at this church. Every night at 7 o'clock until the weekend, Friday to Sunday will be at 6 o'clock. We're going to be meeting for an hour of intentional prayer. And if you've never taken the time to spend with a group in prayer, I want to encourage you to be a part of this. When I was at Andrews, I began to pray on a weekly basis with some pastor friends there. And I want to tell you that when you pray together with others who are passionate about seeing Jesus, passionate about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if you haven't experienced it before, you just have to try it because I can't explain it to you any other way than that it is life-changing, that it will change everything about your life and that you will be filled with joy, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit like you've never been filled before. Sometimes it can be hard to believe, or sometimes you might think, well, I've tried that before. I've gone to a prayer group. I've prayed with people before, and it really hasn't changed my life. Pray until something happens. Jesus promises in Matthew 18 that when two or three are gathered together, that he is right there in the midst of them, and that if they ask anything, that it will be done in heaven as it is done on earth. And we're told, especially in Manuscript Releases, Volume 2, that we're living in a time where we need to meet together to pray. I tell you, we must have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have to have Jesus' presence. It's the most important thing. It is for us, and we must have it. We are living in that time of this earth's history when we must meet to pray for the special blessing upon us individually. And then we shall be in Christ and through Christ victorious. We are too easily satisfied with limited, special, far-between blessings. I don't want to be satisfied in 2016. I don't want to have the same year that I had in 2015. Proverbs 4.18 says that the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until the full light of day. And I want more of Jesus in 2016. One of the best ways to do that is to pray. And I want to encourage you, why not start off the year with prayer? Why not start January 6th, Wednesday night, come here, 7 o'clock, and we are going to seek the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And God's going to show up. He promises that He will. He always follows through on His promises. Will you pray until something happens? I want to encourage you too. Some of you may feel compelled that God is calling you to fast and pray. Because this can be a special way to increase that habit of prayer, to, to help you to pray more earnestly, more passionately, more consistently. Now, don't go 10 days without food, okay? That's not healthy. Jesus did it for you. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights so that you don't have to. Don't, don't fast for more than three days on a, unless you really know what you're doing. But 
For this 10 days, maybe God is calling you to fast in a certain way that will remind you. Maybe it's just to, to fast from certain types of food. Maybe you want to go on a Daniel fast where you just have fruit and vegetables and nuts and, or simple grains or something like that. Or maybe you want to fast from Facebook, fast from the radio, fast from something that you habitually do that will give you more time to pray. Because remember, Jesus said, when the bridegroom's not with you, that's the time to fast and pray. I don't know what God is calling you to do exactly, but I do know this, that he wants for you to more radically seek him in 2016 than you ever have before. He wants you to make a New Year's resolution that you're not going to rest until you have the blessing of Jesus in your heart. That you're not going to go on with those walls that are separating you from Jesus. That you will have every wall broken down in your heart and you will have the presence of Jesus. If you want to join me in this 10 days of prayer and especially praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I want to invite you to raise your hands for me. Starting January 6th, if you want to join in and praying from January 6th to January 16th, asking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, asking for Jesus to move in a powerful way. Now, this isn't for everyone, but those of you whose schedules you believe will allow, I want to invite you, if you want to come and actually meet here, I want to invite you to stand with me, just to remind yourself that you're making a commitment that I'm going to be here Starting Wednesday night, I'm going to come to everyone that my schedule allows. I'm going to be at the 10 days of prayer, earnestly seeking together with my friends for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If it's your desire to experience the blessing that comes from United Prayer, I want to invite you to stand. This isn't for everybody, because not everybody's going to be able to be here all 10 days. But maybe God's calling you in a special way to pray until something happens like you've never done before. He wants you to pray in a special way this 10 days of prayer. And some of you, maybe who aren't able to join in and your schedule's not going to allow for that, maybe God's calling you to join from where you're at. And that's okay. But join in in this 10 days of prayer. And prayerfully consider fasting during this 10 days of prayer. Fasting from something that will remind you that we desperately need the presence of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we've raised our hands, we've stood, and in our hearts I pray that we have made commitments that we are going to seek Jesus more passionately in 2016 than we ever have before because time is short, you are coming soon, and we long to be filled with your Holy Spirit so that we can share your incredible love with this world. Oh, how we long to experience more and more that sweet hour of prayer, the wonderful blessing that comes from being in the presence of Jesus. Jesus, please pour out your Holy Spirit on us today in a fresh way. Please give us a heart to pray. Give us earnestness in prayer. Give us a determination that we will pray until something happens. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.